Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Let's hit it. And welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation as usual as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Hi, everyone. This is Lori LeBay, and I'm thrilled you are able to join us today on Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. We are going to be talking about end-of-life choices, which is so critical to have these conversations so that you can make sure that you're meeting your loved one's needs and wants. Plus, it's going to give you such a calm and comfort when the end comes close. So if you liked our opening music, I always like to mention the Mark Arneson Band. Uh, the song is called Clearing Call, and you can go ahead and um, download that on any of your favorite music apps. Also, if you're new to our show, Alzheimer's Speaks is about sound information, not just sound bites. We like to have real conversations with real people in the trenches. And so I am thrilled to have this conversation today. And maybe, just maybe, you can be our next guest. Feel free to reach out to me at radio at alzheimerspeaks.com. I'm going to do a couple of shout outs and then we are going to uh, join our guest today. Let's see. The last Wednesday of every month, I am doing a support group for care partners that is sponsored by Brookdale North Oaks and the Shoreview Parks and Rec. And you can register for that by calling 763 913-6140, or you can go to alzheimerspeaks.com and get that information as well. I also want to give a shout out to the Brain Donor Project. Brains are needed, both healthy and diseased, in order to be able to find out what is really going on. So go to the Brain Donor project.org for more information. One other shout out I want to give is to the research charity Brace over in the UK. November 2nd, they are going to be interviewing a few of us from around the world. And the topic is Together for Dementia. And I would highly recommend that you go. The fee for tickets is extremely reasonable. Now we're going to hear from the footbar walker, and then I'll be back to introduce our guests. 
Introducing the life-changing Footbar Walker. I'm Peggy from Danville, Kentucky, and I'm 91 years old. The Footbar Walker revolutionized my care of George. It absolutely benefits the patient and the caregiver both, and that's the beauty of it. It's so easy to use. It folds up just like a dream. I got it in and out of the car without any effort at all. The saving that I made from having to put him in a nursing home came to about $192,000. Does someone you love use a walker? Do they struggle to get up from a seated position? Are you a caregiver dealing with physical pain and stress as you help your patient? The Footbar Walker was designed to assist not only the patient, but also the caregiver. Patients have more control standing up, and no lifting from the caregiver is required. See how it works at thefootbarwalker.com. That's thefootbarwalker.com. Peggy, would you recommend the Footbar Walker? Do I ever? I would not be in the health that I'm in today at this age had it not been for the Footbar Walker. Well, I am so excited to introduce you to our guest today. We have Kim Callanan, who is the president and the CEO of Compassion and Choices. And she leads the organization's strategy to empower people to take charge of their final chapter of their lives and to help people plan for possible dementia diagnosis, which this is a this is a really hot topic in our arena. So I'm so glad that you guys have have taken that into uh, account. You also advocate for closing the disparities for end-of-life care, which is critically, critically important as well. Uh, Kim leads efforts around that are authorizing and implementing medical aid in dying in several states and jurisdictions, and frequently testifies before state legislators and serves as a national thought leader on the end-of-life care option. So thank you so much for taking the time today to join us, Kim. Thanks for having us here, Lori. We're really um, delighted to be here. Great. I'm going to also introduce uh, Matt Whitaker, and he is the National Integrated Programs in Compassion and Choices. He works to support medical education and end-of-life planning and client services nationwide. He has helped lead state-level campaigns to increase access to end-of-life choices and has spoken at numerous conferences on bioethics and person-centered care across the country. He's also testified as an expert resource for end-of-life choice, numerous state agencies and legislative committees. So again, thank you, Matt, for joining us. Appreciate your time today. Thanks for having us. I'm excited. Now, before we kind of dive into this topic, which I know for many families is taboo, but I personally think it is so critically important. I'm a girl that likes all my choices. <laughs> and I think it's, I think that this is um, one that so many people avoid, but can be so helpful in terms of giving them comfort in, in terms of end of life planning. So um, first, I'd like to ask um, all my guests if you've personally been touched in your own family or circle of friends, and I'm going to throw it to Kim first. Yeah, Lori, um, I have been ter- personally touched um, by end-of-life issues in general, um, and in particular, Alzheimer's. Um, and it's part of what drew me to this work and why I'm so passionate about it. Um, my personal experience um, was with my um, grandmother. Um, and it was long before I was a part of this work. Um, it was, I was uh, about uh, tw- 28, actually it was 20, almost 21 years ago, cause it was around the time that my son was just born. And my grandmother um, 
had by that point had Alzheimer's for four or five years, um, and I had watched the slow decline of Alzheimer's, um, and I had gone and visited her um, just before my son was born, and she didn't recognize me. And it was just a devastating experience for me um, to see this woman who had been so influential in my life um, no longer um, knowing who I was or knowing herself. Um, and um, I was really naive at the time she had from the time she was, um, I could remember, she had talked about wanting me to bring her a grandchild. And so right after the birth of my son, I flew on a plane from DC where I lived at the time to Florida and I had my son with me. And I really naively thought that somehow I was going to, he was gonna like snap her out of this trance that she was in. Um, and of course I arrived and I placed him very, you know, gingerly and lovingly into her arms and she just um, stared there completely void. Um, no recollection of us, of him, of her, just, you know, she couldn't by this point get out of bed, move, um, nothing. And um, it was in that moment when I realized, gosh, um, I don't know that this is how I would want to live. Um, and I hadn't asked her whether or not this is what she would want. But based on conversations before that, I was fairly sure it wasn't what she would want, but we had never spoken with her about it. And we continued to care for her for several more years um, when she was in that state, long um, years. And we did what most people do, which is that we treated her as if the goal of care was the extension of life. And that's the way medicine treats somebody with dementia. So she got pneumonia. And while pneumonia is often called the old man's friend, we did not use pneumonia as an exit for her and allow her to gracefully end her suffering. We did what most people do and we extended her life. We gave her um, the antibiotic um, and there were several other infections like that. Um, and it wouldn't, at the time it didn't even dawn on us that there was another choice or another option. No one suggested it to us. And we also hadn't had that difficult conversation with her. But it was a moment of crystallization for me where I knew that there would become a moment that if I had dementia and I was declining in that way, there was a moment for me where I would want my loved ones to allow me to realize a natural death. Um, and that's really what has drawn me to this work um, and part of why when I became the CEO, I prioritized the launch of our dementia initiative and the new tools, which um, Matt has been leading us through and we'll talk more about later. You know, I, I so appreciate your story and in, in talking about um, the pneumonia. I had that with my own family. My dad had brain cancer. And he did really well until one day he decided to take the steps instead of the elevator and he fell down two flights of steps, was never the same, caught pneumonia, mm -hmm. was in the nursing home. And of course, the nurse said, you know, would you like, you know, us to give him the shot for pneumonia? My brothers and my mom, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, no. And they all looked at me like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, this isn't going to bring dad back to what he once was. And I said, please correct me if I'm wrong. The hospice person was there and she said, no, she's right. This will extend his life, but he will continue to need full care. And, you know, at that point, then everybody changed their mind. But so often that education piece isn't there 
on what it, what you're even doing and what the choices really are um, and how they'll play out. And so I just thought I'd mention that in case anybody else is out there. It just isn't common to be told, you know, if you get this, what it, what is it really, really going to do? If I could just add in your example, because it's such a good one, you were already in hospice care. And so the hospice folks at least brought the option forward to you. However, with a dementia diagnosis, um, it's years and years before people are in hospice care. And so it would be a very unusual situation for a doctor to proactively let somebody know, especially if the person hasn't actually documented their preferences and preclaimed their voice, that you have the option to forego treatments. And that's a legal option that you can take advantage of. So we're extending people's lives who are in a state of advanced dementia for years without people even realizing it. And I do wanna be clear that there are many moments of joy in the early stages when my grandmother had dementia where I had many, many meaningful moments with her. So I am not suggesting that you shorten somebody's life without them being on board with it um, and when they still have meaning and joy in it. What we are suggesting is that for some people, this option of preclaiming their voice and um, being able to document the point at which you forego treatments can be really powerful. Yeah, uh, the healthcare directives are so important, getting all that legal paperwork. Matt, how about you? Have you been personally touched by dementia in your own family or circle of friends? Yeah, Lori, I, I have absolutely have. And, and similar to Kim, it was those experiences that actually drew me to uh, this work. Uh, my first real exposure to it was when I was in fifth grade and my great-grandfather moved from Missouri where he was living at the time uh, to our hometown in North Georgia and moved into a, a nursing home there. And he and I just became buds uh, for his last year and a half of life. And you know, at the time I didn't know, um, you know what dementia was, but I knew that he never called me by my real name. You know, he. Uh, he called me young Benjamin every time that I, that I came in. He'd say, oh, there's you know smiling young Benjamin coming. And he recognized me, but wasn't sure who I was, you know, that I was just a nice young man. They would come and talk to him. And I would sit there and listen to him kind of regale me with the same stories. And uh, he had a roommate who also had dementia who would, you know, talk to me about his life as well. And I got to know them and got to become really comfortable in that setting and being around people in that setting. And I was fortunate that I had parents who were in the medical field who had very kind of progressive views on uh, things like uh, orienting people with dementia, where they would say, you know, we're not going to waste our time doing that. We're going to go for the ride with them when they uh, go off on a tangent. I remember my mom saying uh, about a woman who was, looked like she was picking apples. And I, I asked her what she was doing. She said, picking apples. And I said, mom, what do you do when somebody's picking apples that aren't there? And she said, you get a bucket. And, uh, and you engage with them and meet them where they are. And that led me to um, studying uh, music therapy when I was in college uh, and my first job uh, out of college working as a music therapist uh, in a geriatric hospital that had a neuropsychiatry uh, unit for folks who had dementia with agitation, who were unable to be in the settings that they were uh, most familiar with and who were coming to the hospital to try to figure out how to get the support that they needed. And, my job there was doing uh, groups, I'd go in and 
with my guitar and sit down at the table and see how many people we could gather together and we would sing and we would reminisce and pull people kind of into a social context. And then I'd step back and see what happens as we set up this scenario and, and I loved it. Um, but as I was doing it, I also saw all the ways that we weren't serving those people. Uh, and I was, you know, terribly troubled by it. And as a musician, I, I did what I thought was the best thing to do in those moments. I wrote a, recorded an album about it, about, you know, how, how bothered I was about, about an individual's journey with Alzheimer's that I had, had witnessed. And I um, kind of got angry and then finally discovered that there was advocacy out there where I didn't just have to write songs about this. I didn't just have to get angry about this, but in fact, I could do something to try to change it and try to, um, as Kim talked about, help people live into those moments of joy as long as they possibly can and avoid those moments of suffering. Because so much of my work was trying to create those moments of joy, but also seeing how oftentimes the way that our medical system works, it detracts from those moments. And so I was obsessed, I became obsessed with how is it that we do more of this, more of this time that we're sitting, we're playing music, we're reminiscing with one another, we're going outside, we're uh, working with plants, we're doing all of these things, spending time with family and less of the kind of medicalized interventions that we do uh, to folks that, that doesn't enhance those moments. And so I've been excited to be at Compassion and Choices, be able to uh, bring that personal experience to it and to be able to do something. Wonderful. Man, your folks were ahead of the, the times. <laughs> uh, fi five years to where you are was yeah. a significant time, no matter how old you are, but um, definitely way, way ahead of their times because there are still a lot of medical professionals that don't understand that concept. So Absolutely. kudos for you, for your, for your passion and involvement. Um, Kim, I want you to tell us about Compassion and Choices as an organization and what the heck, are, you know, are, is your mission and your vision? Sure. Um, so, you know, we live in a society where there's one thing that we can be certain of, and that is that at some point we're all going to die. Um, yet, despite that certainty, very few people are willing to talk about it. Um, it's often um, really behind the scenes and, and there's a lot of stigma around it. Um, and unfortunately, you only have one opportunity to die. And how you die and leave this world has a profound impact on both the dying person and the people that are left behind. So our mission is to create a world and a society where people are able to have the kind of end of life experience that is consistent with their values and their priorities. And we do this by um, increasing people's comfort level in talking about it, by educating people, by empowering people. But as importantly, we have to change both policies and we have to change the health system so that everyone is focused on supporting the patient and allowing the patient to have a voice and a choice in the kind of end of life care that they receive. So that's kind of our broad overall vision. What's amazing about it though, is when I came to Compassion and Choices, the only hesitancy that I had in joining the organization was how was it gonna feel to be around death all the time and whether or not that was gonna be difficult. And what's been incredible about it is what I have seen is that when you are um, in touch with your mortality, 
that it actually allows you to live your life to the fullest. So when you are around our supporters and our storytellers and they have clarity about how they wanna leave this world, along with that clarity comes a conviction to lead every moment of their life to the fullest. Um, and so for me, this work has not been just been a gift because I've got to watch the impact of changing our end of life care system to make it a more patient directed experience, but it's also been a personal gift because it has allowed me to fully embrace life and, and the joy of living. Um, and I never would have expected that that could have come as a result of end of life. Oh, I, I totally agree with you. When you remove that fear, I mean, I don't care what your fear is you're dealing with and when you can remove that, you know, accept it, live within, you are, you are much better off and so is everyone around you. It, it just, um, and when you understand the, the, the choices of, of being able to have that control at end of life, giving that peace. I, I, I don't know, I've been through um, and, and been with a lot of people on transitions and, you know, seeing families stressed out and stuff. But, but those that understand these are the wishes of, it just lightens that burden so much because they're not, they're not processing everything at that one last critical moment. You know, they've had time to absorb this, have conversations. Um, man, people, th this is really big stuff we're talking about um, that is gonna make you, like you said, uh, you just live a better life for yourself and for others. And, and when you think of yourself, you know, think about who, who have I talked to about my wishes? You know, what do I really want? I know if I went tomorrow, I would be cremated, but let me tell you, I've been working on my daughter for that for years because she didn't want me burnt. You know, <laughs> she just didn't want me put to ashes. And, you know, and I joked with her on that, that let me one time in my life be small. This is important to me, you know, and, and let me not take up space and, you know, uh, on this planet. And, but it's been over years of having that conversation where she is finally comfortable and that makes me feel at peace. And I think it makes her feel much more peaceful now too, because she, she understands that was really, really critical um, to me. Kim, you know, today we really wanna talk about your dementia program. So tell, tell us a little bit about what led you to even create a dementia program in this space. Sure, so to start with, of course, I had my own personal um, story that I've already shared. Um, but in addition to that, when I came to Compassion and Choices um, and I started to travel across the country um, over and over and over again, I would hear stories about people whose loved ones um, were in a state of dementia. And oftentimes um, it was even people who had had conversations with their loved ones and they knew that that is not what their loved one would have wanted. And people felt really stuck. I think we often live in this um, world where there's, there's an either or, where people feel like either, um, you know, a person, we're allowed to proactively end this person's life or we're not. Um, and in our current society, with our current laws, people just felt as if they were optionless. But the reality was they really weren't without options. 
Um, there's actually a tremendous amount of options for somebody with dementia right now. Um, the ability to forego treatments, by and large, we created, man created the problem of dementia by being so successful in our medical care that we've extended all other parts of the body and we haven't quite figured out how to extend the mind. And so people are living until their 80s and their 90s and most are ending up or are a good, good majority of people are ending up with some form of dementia, but it's a man-made problem. And as a man-made problem, we can also solve that problem by just simply foregoing treatments. A lot of people have you know, pneumonia or some other con condition, they're on um, kidney dialysis, they have a heart disease, they have cancer. And so there's so many options for us to allow a person to choose a natural death over a prolonged medicalized life, if people were just a real, aware of that. Um, and so when I um, moved into the, I started out as the chief program officer, I moved into the role of the CEO. I really wanted to see us lift this idea up that you do have options right now for somebody with dementia. Dementia is not the kind of disease where it's a switch where all of a sudden you go from, you know, I would want to live this way to I wouldn't want to live this way. It's a slow decline. And so um, having an option to end your um, suffering using a similar slow way where you're um, avoiding um, prolonging your life through medicalization is actually a really appropriate solution that we're not taking advantage of. Um, and so that that's sort of where the idea um, came about. Well, I shouldn't take credit for the whole idea. I mean, lots of people were part of, of coming up with the idea, but that, that sort of led the organization to um, prioritizing the dementia work that we were doing. And um, it's been incredible to see um, the kind of progress that we've made. Now, I'll let Matt really talk more about this because this has been um, a, a labor of love for him. Before I go to you, Matt, um, one of the comments I just want to make um, to our families out there is this is a huge topic for people diagnosed. Many of them have not talked to you about it because they are not comfortable in what your response is going to be. Many um, tell me they're stashing pills away to be able to take their life because they don't want to live in an incapacitated ability or stage, whatever that is. And their biggest fear is, is they won't know where those pills are when the time comes. So if you think for one second, this, this isn't going through people's minds, it is. And you are much better off having this as a conversation as a family and being able to do this in a, in a legal format yeah. and something that will be safe for all and respectful. So I just wanted to throw that out. Matt, yeah. why don't you um, tell us about the dementia values and priorities tools and your, you know, for advanced care planning. I'm really excited to learn more about this. Yeah, well, I'm excited to share it. And, you know, as Kim said, these tools are about people having kind of the opportunity to pre-claim in advance of uh, the time when they might not be able to make decisions for themselves, what it is that's important to them. And so when we talked about advanced care planning related to dementia, it was really important for us to create tools and documents that had a big range of flexibility. Because if you've met one person with dementia, you've met one person with dementia. So anytime you hear kind of a one size fits all solution to problems, you should maybe be a little skeptical uh, of that. And so what we sought to do is to create a tool that really captures what it is that's important to a person. 
what are kind of some of the landmarks in the progression of dementia that for that, uh, that person might represent a decline um, that for them would make their family need to have different decisions. And I'll give an example. So maybe for, for a person, it's really important for them that they're able to uh, be free of anxiety and to be able to do so without being heavily medicated to the point that they're unable to interact with family members. And if they get to a point where that's necessary, um, for them, that represents a significant decline in quality of life. That, that represents their life kind of taking a turn towards things that aren't valuable or important to them. For another person, that not, might not represent the same thing. And so we wanted to create a tool that kind of had flexibility to do that. So our values and priorities tool walks a person through 15 kind of standard markers that show kind of the progression of dementia. And for each one, it gives a person several different options for what their care preference would be. And they're kind of standard advanced care planning preferences. Uh, at one side, you have uh, the ability to have all medical treatment. So you know, no matter what happens, I wanna make sure you are treating all of those pieces. Kind of one tier down from that, you have the option to withhold life savings treatments, meaning if I were to get in some type of accident and need CPR or defibrillation or to be intubated, I wanna decline those pieces at that point. I wanna be a do not resuscitate. A little further down, you have the option to be that and also to make sure that you're not treating any other illnesses that come up that could prolong your life. So Kim was talking about pneumonia, this could be urinary tract infections, this could be certain forms of skin breakdown, this could be congestive heart failure, this could be renal failure, all of those different pieces. And then finally, uh, we also have an option for people to decline all those pieces and also to look at the issue of hydration and nutrition and spoon feeding and uh, what it looks like at that point for people who are being offered food and water, even if they're not interested in it and making sure that their family knows that at that point, they would like to decline those pieces as we, those are medical care as well. And so, you know, each of those kind of options becomes available for a person to write and to, to mark. You go through the tool, mark those pieces. And at the end, you're given an addendum to your advanced care directive that's specific to dementia. You also have the option to add combinations of those things, to add your own piece. There's a lot of folks who, uh, for example, I, I get to see what the responses are on the back end, add things like, you know, I can no longer spend time outdoors. And for them, that might represent a decline in quality of life and they would want their care preference to change. Or I, I'm not um, kind when I'm around children. That's a, a piece that's a big fear for people. I, they, maybe they had a relative who was agitated when they saw them when they were a child and they wanna make sure that they don't have a similar experience with their grandchildren or great grandchildren. And so we allow people to document all those pieces, not only because it's important for them to have those options and to have the ability, as Kim said, to kind of pre-claim what point is their line in the sand, but also because it, it represents that at that point, we should really shift our focus from this person being, again, on that model, that do everything medicalized model to, okay, now we're gonna spend as much time as possible making sure that this person has the best days possible. Because if we think about quality of life, we think about uh, kind of best practices when it comes to caring for folks who are in the advanced stages of dementia, um, having them go in and out of the emergency room for pneumonia is not contributing to quality of life. 
you know, having them have to go to kidney dialysis every day and see a new cast of strangers uh, and then go back to the place where they live is not oftentimes enhancing quality of life for that person, but ensuring that they're able to be around people that they love, familiar people, familiar music, smells, things, foods, those are the types of things that we wanna make sure that people feel like they can document ahead of time uh, that they're able to kind of be a part of. And so again, our tool kind of gives people the opportunity to put that on paper and to guide their family and their decision makers in the future. If I could just add, Lori, to something that sure. Matt said, that um, when this produces that customized care plan, it really is a gift to the loved ones. Because part of what we see with um, dementia is people really struggling with all kinds of decisions that you have to make about what kind of care you provide to somebody. And if you don't have a clear roadmap on what your loved one would want, it is agonizing to be put in that position. Um, so if you don't want to do it for yourself, if you're like, oh, it doesn't really matter to me, or I'm, you know, think about it as a gift for your loved one. Mm -hmm. And as really that roadmap for them um, to help them make those very difficult decisions that they're going to have to make, um, should you end up in a state of dementia. And a roadmap of how to love you. You know, that's, you know, Lori, you talked about the conversations with your daughter about your funeral plans and things like that. And, you know, those are tough conversations. And so often we kind of remove them from the emotions tied to them, right? Because we're thinking about logistics. You know, um, am I going to take this person to the hospital or not? Are we going to prescribe medication for this or not? Is this person going to be cremated or not? Are they going to have a visitation at their funeral? All of these different things we think of in kind of clerical terms. But in fact, when it comes to bear that you're in that scenario and you're making those decisions, it's really, this is how you can show love to me in this scenario that you've never been in before and that there's really not a dry run for. And, and when you get there, it's so hard when you can't talk to your loved one or you can't cook for your loved one or you can't speak to them in, in, in the same way that you did before. So you know, we, I often say for folks who are having trouble even having the conversation with their family about it, I say, tell them that this is how you can show love to me in this moment. And this is my guide for you on how to do that. And if you do these things, you can feel confident that I'm proud of you, that I'm, I'm satisfied with that, that you're doing enough. Um, because again, those scenarios are the scenarios where we're oftentimes, again, in this really uh, unfamiliar territory and where guilt comes into the picture and where doubt comes into the picture. And it's such a gift to be able to provide that guide. This is such a fabulous tool. And I loved when you started out with talking about, you know, when you've met one person with dementia, you've met one. And, and I would say, if you're talking with someone who doesn't know that run, because this is such a critical, critical piece. And not only is it just the person with dementia, but it's every care partner as well. It's every family member and everyone is going to cope with this differently. I look at where we are in the world and in life. And I think, how can we not have these conversations about quality of life? I mean, that is just such a critical aspect that everybody wants, and yet no one's talking about it. And to me, it's just absolutely asinine that we've wrapped it in fear when it's absolutely a beautiful thing and a gift to everybody, you know, in the end to be able to have these, these conversations. Um, and I think when you're, when you're doing this with your loved one, it also is something easily family members can be doing for themselves. 
I mean, and that might take some of the scary out of all of this too. It's like, gosh, I haven't thought about this either. You know, we all really need to be able to, to have this conversation. And so this can, this is a learning tool, I think, for, for everyone to understand better what really, what is important in, you know, in our world. In terms of, you know, there's other tools that are out there. What do you think really makes yours different compared to the traditional advanced care planning tools, Matt? Well, I think the, the fact that it's so customizable to me is the thing that really separates it from all those other tools and that it really uses a values-based approach. You know, so many of our advanced planning documents, they're so medicalized. I mean, you, you have to have a law degree or a medical degree for one just to understand them sometimes. And we all saw that you know, a, a little over a year ago when we were stepping into this pandemic for the first time and suddenly people were hearing words on the news like ventilator and defibrillation and nutrition and hydration and all of these things. And you realize you know, most of us, those concepts are so foreign, but what we do understand is, you know, what quality of life means for us, what we value, all of those different questions. And so the fact that our tool frames things in that way and then gives people options and walks you through what each of those kind of things means to me is a really unique quality of it. And the fact that literally the, the sky is the limit on what you can add uh, to these pieces. You know, again, talking about the uniqueness of each case when we were creating the tool, we thought, well, maybe we create a tool where we say, as you go through the different stages of dementia or Alzheimer's, you can change your care preferences. But again, people don't clearly stage in that way. Some person might have some characteristics of advanced dementia and some characteristics of early dementia and uh, on, on any given day have different pieces that are manifesting. And so for a family member to try to step into such a rigid structure and make decisions can be really hard. And so I think our tool giving a person the option to, to do all of those pieces is really important. And also we pair it with another tool, which is called our diagnosis decoder. Uh, and we have a dementia decoder branch of that, which gives people the option to get evidence-based questions that they can ask their doctor or healthcare provider for various situations and scenarios. For example, my loved one with dementia is being offered treatment for an illness unrelated. What do I do? What questions do I ask? To ask those questions like you did, Lori, with your, your father of um, what happens if we treat this pneumonia? What happens if we don't? And giving people permission and guidance to ask those questions and to feel like that's a possibility is also helpful. So I think it's not only that the tool is unique, but that it's situated within a suite of things and also that it's situated within an organization that not only provides this education, but also advocates so that if we start seeing people who are creating these advanced directives and they're encountering resistance from uh, you know, institutional care facilities, you know, what, what are we gonna do? Well, we're gonna come back and we're gonna educate those people. We're gonna push, we're gonna take the full force of our supporter base and, and advocate for change within that industry. You know, if, if people come back and they say, well, we're encountering legal challenges to this in a place, we have a full legal advocacy department. So I also, feel so confident putting this out into the world because I also know that we have the full weight of our organization behind it. And I've seen the things that we're able to do for people when they encounter resistance to those pieces. So um, all in all, I feel just so confident that this is not only a unique 
product and tool, but it's a, we're uniquely situated to be bringing it to the world. If you compare our dementia tool to standard advanced directive, the other big difference is an advanced directive only really covers the very, very end of one's life when they can no longer speak for themselves. Um, and it's really about whether or not they want, um, you know, invasive um, procedures in a hospital at the very end of life. It does not cover all of those, what could be years for somebody with dementia um, of decision-making um, around what kind of care they do and they don't get. Um, mm -hmm. So the tool is far, far um, more encompassing than what a standard advanced directive um, ad addresses. Well, and I love that you have the support behind you. I, I think of my mom when she was in her very end stages and, and actively dying. And, you know, she said she, she didn't want, you know, any supportive things. And all of a sudden I hear the night nurse had her on oxygen. She gave her um, Tylenol by suppository. I mean, those are things my mom would have not wanted. And, you know, the nurse said, this is how I was trained. And I said, I don't care how you were trained. This is my mom's wishes. And then I went to the head nurse and I said, you know, you've got a rogue nurse that needs to understand what is going on here, because I'm not going to tolerate this. And, um, you know, they ap apologize profusely, but as family members, you do sometimes need to stand up and be able to hear. And even like with my dad, with the, with the pneumonia, um, the hospice was wonderful, but the way, and this was, this was back in 01 when he passed away, but the way they approached it to the family was, you know, well, we can give him you know, a shot for pneumonia. And, and that'll take care of that. And, and, and that was it. There wasn't any education in terms of the other until I brought that point up. And so sometimes depending on the resistance from the family and the, the dynamics, the message changes because people, nobody wants to get into a fight you know, over this stuff. And so it's really important to get educated. And, you know, I would recommend for people to at least go out there and check this out. But Matt, you know, it sounds like you're, you're really talking about doing this ahead of time so that people can really be involved in their own life stages. Are you seeing more people through your education planning ahead of time instead of pulling their hair out going, oh my gosh, I wish we would have had this conversation. I don't know what to do. We absolutely are seeing more people do it. I think a little bit that of that is a consequence of the fact that this hasn't gone well for us as a society for a bit. You know, Kim and I constantly have these conversations with our supporters and volunteers. And unfortunately, so many of them come to us because they had a bad experience. They had a loved one that that they had to advocate so actively for and they, where they really had to fight. And they, and they suddenly said, you know, this isn't working. Um, and so they came to us to figure out how it is that they could work to change the system. Um, and also people who are just a, a generation of folks who have made really active decisions for the rest of their lives, right? These are people who care deeply about choosing uh, when they had children, choosing what type of career they wanted, choosing how it is that they wanted to spend their retirement. All of these things become really important. And then as they're looking at, to the future and looking to the end of life, they want to make sure that they're approaching it with the same level of intentionality. To not do so would be completely inconsistent with who they are as people. So we're seeing more and more people do it. 
But our education efforts, I think, are really crucial in kind of uh, allowing people to do that more regularly and giving people permission to do so. You talked about this scenario where you had to really advocate. I think for so many people, they don't know that that's a possibility, or maybe the way that they were taught to approach the medical community is with such fear and reverence that in those scenarios, they don't even know that they're allowed to ask what the other options might be or to advocate for their loved one or, or whatever it might be. And I think that we are seeing kind of a shift as people are recognizing the power that they hold when it comes to their power as caregivers, their power as patients, as consumers of healthcare. And we talk all the time about the power of the patient's voice. You know, we, we exercise our power um, in so many different aspects of life and choosing where it is that we shop and how it is that we buy things, what communities we want to live in, how we want our tax dollars spent, you know, what type of groceries we get, whether we get a big gas guzzling car. I mean, all these different things are ways that people are showing what they care about um, through the value of how it is they make decisions. But medical care continues to be this kind of mystery to us where we don't feel like it's the same thing. We kind of just accept what comes, hop on that conveyor belt and go. But in fact, we have far more power than we think we do. And, and we have the power to advocate for ourselves and for our loved ones. So a lot of our education is about letting people know you know, this isn't just patient-centered care. You're not just at the middle of this. This is patient-directed care. You can direct what happens to you. You're in charge. And all of these people that are involved in this, really, they work for you because you're the one that this is happening to and you're the one who's making these decisions. So doing these tools gives people an opportunity to go through that mental exercise of, of doing it and also to really empower those people that are around them with it. So we're absolutely seeing an uptick. We want people to continue to utilize these tools. I often say that this is our first best dip of our big toe into the pool of what it means to engage with care around dementia. And that, you know, Kim and I talk a lot about what's what's next, right? This is, this is, a, this is a way that people are gonna interact with this. It's gonna change the way that care is delivered. And then we get to that next reality and what's next on the horizon after that. So we're, I think, excited to be on for that ride. Yeah, there's, there's so much going on. It, it, it makes me think too, when my, my dad, and this was a brain cancer thing, he ended up in the hospital and all of a sudden he was just failing. I mean, within two hours, I mean, he was from being totally cognitive and, and, and fine, though in a little bit of pain. Um, to just fading away. And, you know, I told the nurse I wanted a second opinion and I said, something is wrong. And she's like, no, no. I said, he needs a CT like, or an MRI, like now something's going on. And uh, she was no, no. And I'm like, okay, we're going down to, you know, your patient advocate. And, you know, in the hospitals, a lot of people don't even know that that exists. And she came up and she's like, nope, we're going to have another doctor look over these orders. And here, the prior doctor mistakenly took him cold turkey off a drug where his, you know, and it was one to reduce the, the pressure in his brain. And the doctor said it would have killed him, mm -hmm. you know, and so knowing to be able to stand up, but again, I knew my dad's wishes at that point, And that, you know, that was something he would have wanted at that time. So, you know, these conversations are so absolutely critical, you know, for people to be able to have. Um, Matt, how do you account for the notion that a person could change their mind? Because 
you know, you can go through this whole thing and be a one mindset and go, yep, I'm good with that. And then later on go, oh, I didn't quite understand it in that fashion, or I didn't know that this was included in the verbiage that I use. What happens if somebody changes their mind? Well, the amazing thing about advanced care planning documents is that, you know, as the person is capable of changing their mind and documenting those things, you can change these pieces at any time. You know, um, they often say that, you know, every decade you should revisit these things, every diagnosis you should revisit these things, every divorce you should revisit these things. You know, anytime those things happen, you should revisit these documents. But also, again, I think that's why our documents have so much flexibility and why they're really values based and based around what quality of life looks like for a person. So that even if that person isn't contemporaneously uh, able to be involved in the decision-making, their family looking at that, seeing what is that is important to them can say, you know what? It looks like maybe we've kind of passed this line in the sand, but there are still a lot of good days happening. Mm -hmm. And we know from our conversations that mom or dad or spouse or whoever it might be, they were in this scenario, they would want us to continue down X, Y, Z route. And the way that advanced care planning documents work is they're, they're not so harshly binding that as soon as you write something down, that's it. And I think that that perception that people have sometimes puts us in a paralysis of not wanting to write anything down because what if, you know? And so, so much of um, what we do is about not only creating the documents, but pairing them with really uh, deep conversations with the people that are going to be uh, making these decisions on your behalf. And if you've done that work and you've made it clear to them, again, what quality of life looks for you, how this is a, a rough roadmap for them to be able to make these decisions on, as Kim talked about, that slow decline that's happening. And it's not that overnight something happens and all of a sudden this person is gone because we've made this decision, um, but in fact is about how it is that we approach all of the different medical decisions that are taking place around them then it can really account for that change that happens. And look, I saw it um, all the time when I cared for people with uh, dementia, where people would say, you know, mom was really scared about X, Y, or Z change, but um, I see her out there and she's singing with you and she's talking and she's reminiscing. And it seems like her days are really good. And she's recognizing me in those moments. And we're having these really good moments of clarity. And you go, yeah. And then you also see six months, eight months later when they go, you know, something's changed. You know, um, we're not having those good days anymore and, and things are different. And now we need to approach all these decisions from a different um, standpoint, from a different vantage point. And so, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. People change their minds, things can change. And that's really the beauty of these documents is that they can change too and that flexibility can be built in. And if I can just underscore something that Matt has um, pointed out, which actually really came through in your stories that you were sharing, Lori, is the importance of the person that you select as your healthcare proxy. It is so important that you have those conversations about what your values and priorities are with that person. And it's also important that you select somebody who's going to follow your wishes um, but also is strong enough that they're going to be willing to stand up against um, potential pressure from the medical system or others to do something that's different from what you would want. Um, and a lot of times people default to their spouse. Um, and sometimes the spouse is the right person. So I'm not suggesting that in all situations they're not. 
But a lot of time the spouse is going through their own grieving and they're having their own difficult time um, and that they're not necessarily the best person to be standing up to a medical system. Um, and so it's really important you think about your loved one and, and the role that they would want to play in this and who that best person is and you select somebody who really is going to represent your values, your priorities, um, and your your care, your care, your needs? Yeah, that's a good point. I know with my own folks, <laughs> this is kind of funny. Um, yeah, even though my folks kind of looked at me as their own personal nurse, even though I'm not one, that's how they would introduce me, kind of to the doctors and stuff. Um, as far as care, um, when it came to like say pulling the plug, if that needed to be done, they assigned that to my brother, and they yeah. and. And I was in there when they were meeting with the attorney and they just said, Mark won't have a problem. We know you and Scott, that'll be difficult, but we know that Mark won't. And I, you know, I personally don't think that I would have, if I would have known that that was their wishes, but I think they also wanted to include him yeah. in the process as well. And so there's all different reasons and ways to do this. And there is no right or wrong, every family is different. But again, having this conversation, knowing that you can change this, just like you should review your wills and everything else in your life and make sure that they're up to snuff in terms of what you want. But you know, these are just conversations that are so uncomfortable for still so many people. Um, Kim, I want to ask you, you know, is there a chance that suffering could be even greater if they don't choose life-sustaining treatment? Uh, you know, I know that that's a worry for people. Well, if I don't do this, then what's going to happen to me? So generally speaking, um, the invasive medical uh, procedures at the end of life that you'll get in the hospital result in a tremendous amount of pain and suffering. So if you, first of all, if you just think about somebody with dementia, one of the things that is um, most helpful to them is to be in their setting. So just moving them from their own setting into a hospital, that already causes agitation. But um, if you just think about a medical show, which by the way, they make it look much better than it is. Um, but what the, you know, these invasive procedures are, are long tubes going down your throat. Um, and you've seen on the medical shows where the person takes it off and they're gasping for air and how uncomfortable it looks. It's even worse than the way they make it look in a show. You're pounding on somebody's ribs and cracking their chest. Um, so no, like generally speaking, the life-sustaining invasive treatments um, is going to result in more suffering for somebody. Um, you can choose to get care. So we often, we talk about foregoing treatments. We're talking about foregoing life-extending treatments, but we're not talking about foregoing pain management. Um, so, you know, you may, somebody may want to be on oxygen because it brings them comfort um, versus, you know, trying to, you know, save their life on a ventilator. So that's important to work with your doctor on there. You will get treatment, even if you are um, foregoing life-sustaining treatment, and that treatment will likely include pain medication and other things that will make the person comfortable. And the good news is that, um, our palliative care has gotten so good. So you really, um, if you have a strong palliative care team in place that's focused on the symptoms and taking care of the symptoms, um, for many people, you can have a very peaceful and compassionate um, 
compassionate end without a lot of suffering. Now, that does not mean that there are not diseases where unfortunately even the best palliative care won't mean that there's no suffering, but um, we do have um, very good in many places um, palliative care. I would agree. I mean, even simple things like, you know, when someone can't swallow pills, getting them in a liquid format, I'm thinking, why does someone have to be on palliative care to get that? Why isn't this being, you know, prescribed by their doctor? I mean, I, I just, a lot of this stuff, I don't, I still to this day don't understand. It's kind of backwards that you have to go there um, to the point of um, suffering and discomfort. I just think of, you know, even my mom with dementia going to an appointment, going, like you said, out of her home and that anxiousness of what's wrong with me, or you hear of ambulance rides, those things are bumpy and hard and you've got sirens. I mean, you, you're touching so many of the senses and the, the, the scare buttons there. It's not even funny um, with that. So there are, there's just so much to, to take in being in the hospital, being alone is a whole nother thing. Really thinking about these things is, is absolutely very, very important. Lori, if I could just underscore something that you said that is so important, which is that, um, there was an article that was written by an emergency room physician of 30 years in the Washington post. It was an op-ed. I think his name was Dr. Jeffrey Hofsta. Um, it came out maybe a year and a half ago, um, and the headline was something like, um, doctors are torturing patients with dementia um, for no reason. And he tells the story of a woman who was 80 years old in a state of advanced dementia, who had zero quality of life and how she got rushed from the nursing home to the hospital and her family wanted all of the invasive, you know, medical procedures, anything that you can do to keep her alive and, you know, cracked ribs and the tube down her throat and all kinds of invasive procedures. And then of course she dies, um, you know, a, a, a couple of hours later anyway. Um, and his point was, this is a woman who's in a state of advanced dementia, who has no quality of life. And the automatic default was to rush her from the nursing home to the hospital. And then when she got there, the family still couldn't give up. And what did we do? We tortured her. And this happens in a lot. I mean, something like, I don't remember the exact stats, but like one in four people with a state of advanced dementia end up in a hospital at the end of their life. So that, um, even that decision, even just documenting the decision, if I'm in a state of advanced dementia, I don't want to end up in the hospital. I'd like to stay put and you keep me comfortable where I am when my time comes. Even that one decision could have a profound impact on allowing you to have a much more compassionate death. But it does take having that conversation in advance and in pre-planning. Well, and I, I think too, even like when you're, when you're doing this or when you're going back to review it, um, really understanding who are you making these decisions for? Because sometimes I think family will talk someone into extending their life because they're not willing to deal with it. And I have seen that multiple times in all different types of scenarios, not just dementia. And, you know, it's, it's horrible for, for the person. It's horrible for the, the loved one who, you know, isn't ready to let go. And it's horrible for everyone else around watching this happen. Because to me, that is the true crisis of, of not, you know, no one's wishes are being met at that point. 
And everyone is just spinning and no one, you know, everyone's kind of in this state of denial of what is going on. And so to have these important conversations is, is really critical. I mean, I think, you know, if you ask most people, they'll say, eh, if I go, I want to, I want to go on my sleep. Well, they want to go in their sleep because they, they visualize that as a peaceful death. You know, it's not disruptive to anybody or myself. I'm just, I'm, I'm at home. I, I just go on my own. And yet, like you said, so often we're taking all of these extra measures, adding all this additional fear because, you know, a doctor can't approach in, a, in an emergency situation, kind of that calming aspect that you were talking about with your folks. Well, if the woman's got, you know, if she's grabbing for apples, what do you do? You get a bucket. You don't have time to get a bucket and to calm her down. You're just too busy with life threatening and, and saving a life. And, and I think that that's really, really important for people to understand. My own mom, again, I, I just, I relate to this so much, but she was really big on death and dying. Even when we were little, she always brought us to the funerals and the wakes. And, and back then, I'm 62, her, her friends would say, Dorothy, Dorothy, they, they shouldn't be here. They shouldn't be here. And my mom was always would say, they they're there when when we enter they should be there when when life is over this shouldn't be afraid and actually when my mom was dying she totally set that up for our family and and actually I wasn't there because she wanted them to have hands-on and I was doing keynotes and I believe she was up there orchestrating it all because she this was really important for her not only for her quality of life, but for her legacy in terms of leaving, this could be peaceful and helpful and comfortable. As, as sad as it is, and the grief is going to be normal, there can still be great comfort in knowing this is what somebody wanted and, and we honored that. And, and it's so sad that that many times isn't the starting point of the conversation. It's a, yeah, I'm too scared. <laughs> I don't I'll just add to that, that, you know, we talk a lot about how it's hard to have this difficult conversation and how do you approach it? And I'll just say the conversation is only difficult um, because we're making it difficult. Yeah. Um, I, you know, my daughter was raised around end of life. She turned 18. We pulled out her advanced directive. We sat down, we had a conversation. She filled it out. It was nothing. It was just like another form she was filling out for college. And, you know, that experience happened because we had a household where we talked about the end of life and the inevitability of death and the importance of valuing and treasuring the limited amount of time that we have. Um, and so we're making the conversation more difficult than it has to be by attaching the stigma to it. Um, and that's partly what we have to get rid of, because by attaching that stigma to it, we are um, resulting in so many people having traumatic ends, and those traumatic ends are leaving an awful imprint on their loved ones. And instead of that loved one having that beautiful, intimate moment of closure, they're left behind seeing their loved one, you know, and what's etched in their memory is this awful medicalized experience um, of suffering. 
Um, and it doesn't have to be that way. And that's what, you know, Matt and I are really hoping that these tools are really about creating a conversation and creating opportunities with families so that we can bring about much greater humanity at life's end. Have you guys ever thought about trying to get this as a curriculum in schools? Because I think that's really where it needs to go on multiple levels. One, to educate our kids, because I, I know I've personally had many friends who their child has gotten into a car accident, lands in the hospital, they're paying the medical bills, but they can't get anything out of the doctors, you know, and I mean, it's just a, a, the whole thing is a nightmare because there's been no paperwork. There's been no conversation about this, but also too, I think when we educate our kids, they come home and they talk to the family and they are, they're a wonderful source of education and being able to approach this on a different, in a different light going, why would someone so young think this is so important? And they can just bring it from a whole, a whole different level, different perspective on why they think it's important. And then kind of in some ways, almost pressuring the adults per se to do the right thing, to, yeah. to, to live smartly, you know, <laughs> and, and be prepared and make it easier on people. You know, yeah, you know it's interesting. <clears throat> some of my favorite, uh, stories we have volunteers all across the country that do community education and uh, uh you know they say all politics is local you know all education is local too and um in fact there's a, a volunteer who uh, i'm good friends with who's out here in oregon with me she's in uh, corvallis oregon and that's been her goal she's been going to the high schools there to the high school health class and to the high school um, allied health interest class and doing these classes around advanced directives and things. And she said, it's amazing kind of the, the light bulbs that go off. And there's other volunteers that have been doing the same thing around engaging the next generation in this conversation around uh, planning and pieces. And I, you know, I don't know about Kim, but I've noticed this real shift in the last, you know, even five years through um, the legacy of people like people like Brittany Menard, who was a 29 year old, who was a huge public figure around the idea of end of life um, options, uh, where you know, the generation of people who are coming to work at Compassion and Choices is, is a different group of people who are now seeing this as an important issue and who are having those conversations with their parents and grandparents and uh, trying to model that behavior as well and trying to also model that openness of saying, I'm willing to talk about this um, and willing to talk about what's important to me, what's important to you. Uh, and so it's been a really interesting, I think, generational shift that has taken place. We had a, a great um, article in our magazine a few times, uh, 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 issues ago, that was about how each generation kind of looks at this issue based on what they've encountered throughout the course of their lifespan. And the consistent thing throughout it is that everyone felt like we could do better. And we all come at it from a different angle, but we have this kind of shared understanding that maybe we have more power than we think. Yeah, the other big shift that we have seen um, is how this is now covered in, um, uh, in, in the media, not just in like the news media, but also in television shows and movies. I mean, five or six years ago, people weren't doing movies about this. And, and, you know, now we've had several movies, really high profile movies here a while with Anna Camp just came out. Um, it's been covered in Grey's Anatomy. I was just, I just started watching Chicago MD and the whole first season is about end of life decision-making and doctors being able to understand why it's important to honor patients' perspectives. 
it's almost to the point where it's covered so much, it's hard to keep up with this. And that really is a demonstration of how much this issue has grown. The fact that you've got, um, you know, so much coverage taking place in popular television. You know, a really exciting thing that's happening is there's even a musical that's been written about um, end of life choices. Um, we just, um, Compassion and Choices um, helped to sponsor it and the first album um, is gonna come out this fall, but super, super powerful songs that are depicting the end of life, using the power of television and the media to help um, hopefully create more conversations and awareness about why this is so important. Oh, wonderful. Matt, as far as community pushback, it sounds like people are starting to get on board more, but how about the, the medical profession themselves, you know, because they, they take an oath, you know, to, to kind of keep people alive. And are you seeing the shift there as much as you are in the public? You know, absolutely. You know, we have kind of medical providers, and then you have the medical community, which mm -hmm. is the systems and the hospitals and the insurance and all these different things that are kind of apparatus that things fit into. And the fortunate thing about our work is that most of the time we're talking to the individual providers, be that through large education or through meetings or, or whatever it might be. And my experience is when you talk to them, you say, we're doing this work to give people permission to ask these questions, to, to go about this in a proactive way. I actually see people's kind of shoulders relax a little bit and they're kind of like, thank goodness. Um, because as Kim talked about in that article in the Washington Post, most of these medical providers, they agree that this is not the reality that we want. But there is a terror and a hesitancy around being the person who starts the conversation. As a medical provider, being the one who goes in the room and says, let's talk about what happens if I don't do anything, is not something that a person is trained in medical school to do. Um, it's not the way that our medical system works. And quite frankly, it's not the way that patients expect their doctors to speak to them. And so, so much of the way that we talk about our tools, especially in conversations with medical providers, is that these are communication and trust building aids where you can go into those settings, bring these issues up, have a real open and honest conversation and dialogue. And the feedback that I've gotten back from those doctors, nurses, social workers, chaplains, counselors, um, is that that is a huge relief for them that patients are bringing this up and that they're able to again, help in that decision-making process and not feel like, gosh, I just have to go to the default. I just have to do everything and hope for the best. And uh, whether I think that that's gonna enhance this person's quality of life or not, whether or not I feel like that's in line with the oath that I took to do no harm, uh, whether or not that's something that I personally feel is morally and ethically justified, um, that's just the way the system works and I'm not gonna get sued for doing too much, right? And so um, it's really a relief, I think, for them. And I personally, anytime we have a new tool that comes out, I try it. I try it at my doctor's office. And I think my, my doctors come to um, expect it now. You know, each time he's kind of like, okay, what have you got for me this time? But I can say those first conversations, it was a little uncomfortable because he wasn't used to someone raising these pieces. Um, but I think what came out of it was a much deeper relationship that he and I have and a much deeper understanding of where it is that we're coming from uh, as individuals and a little bit of shared vulnerability, um, which I think we really need uh, in our medical system. So no, you know, we're not really seeing the pushback on those pieces. I think more often than not, we're seeing a lot of gratitude that we're engaging in this. 
And the other thing to add is that on the systemic level, we're also seeing more involvement in this. So Medicare now is paying for end-of-life conversations. That's not something that when I started at Compassionate Choices was available. So the fact that a person can say, I'd like an appointment to talk to you about my advanced care planning documents, that's revolutionary. <laughs> and um, it's revolutionary for the physicians too, because they are pushed so hard so many appointments, so many 15-minute slots of pop in, pop out, see what we can get to in that time, to be able to say, we're going to schedule a dedicated time to talk about this and nothing else, I think is a huge relief for them. And again, these tools make it easier for people to do that. Yeah. And I would just add, I really do think we are um, in the midst of a transformation that's taking place. And it's a shift from a paternalistic end-of-life care system um, to one that is resoundingly more patient-directed. Um, and I like to equate it to the kind of change that we saw in the childbirth movement. If I think back to when my mother had me, um, she had an entirely medicalized childbirth experience. She had no options or choices. My father was um, wait, relegated to the waiting room um, and she was given pain medication without you know, any thought or, or decision behind it. And when I had my son 30 years later, I had an eight page birth plan that dictated my values and my priorities. And that's what guided his care. And there was actually a moment in the delivery where things were not going as planned. And the nurse midwife and the doctor said, let's try X because that's, those are her values and she doesn't want to end up with a C-section if she can avoid it. And as a result, they ended up, I delivered a healthy child um, and they were able to follow my preferences and my values. Um, and so I think we're in the midst of that same kind of cultural revolution that we saw in the childbirth movement, which came as a result of women demanding a different kind of experience. Now you have those baby boomers and they're sandwiched in between taking care of their own aging parents and contemplating their own mortality. And we are seeing that same kind of revolution taking place at the end of life. And you're seeing the healthcare systems adopting much more supportive patient-directed policies because they have to in order to stay relevant to their patients. I love that. Kim, one question people are probably wondering is, do your tools, um, are they applicable in all states? So if you print this out and you add this in, you know, will, will it be upheld? Because I know every state, you know, has their little different twists and turns on that. Yeah. So um, the tool itself, um, you can use it anywhere. They're really establishing your values, your priorities, and your care preferences. And um, with the dementia directive, you have the right to preclaim your voice and to forego treatments. As I mentioned, the most important thing is the person that you choose as your healthcare proxy, because regardless of what your rights are, it's all about surrounding yourself with a supportive system and having somebody who will advocate for you. So unfortunately, just because it's your right, it doesn't mean that that's you're gonna um, immediately find a doctor who is supportive of honoring your rights. It doesn't mean that the doctor's own biases are not gonna enter into what they believe that you should do for your loved one. And that's why the more that you can do in advance to align yourself up and establish yourself in a supportive environment, which starts with finding a, um, 
the right healthcare proxy, making sure all of your loved ones know what your preferences are, and also surrounding yourself with a supportive care team. So Matt talked about how he goes to his doctor and he brings that tool. We have this great tool that we created called Finding a Partner Doctor. And it's available on our website. And you take that tool and we give you a list of questions and you have a conversation with your doctor and you can go ahead and have Medicare pay for it if you have Medicare as a part of an advanced care planning conversation. And you can find yourself a supportive doctor. And if your doctor is not someone who's going to honor your values and priorities, take your business someplace else. And actually, this is exactly what I did when I had my son. I went into the very first doctor and I let her know that I wanted a natural childbirth experience. And she was like, I don't know about all that. And I took my business to a different doctor. And that kind of, um, that power of the individual person to make choices is what changed the childbirth experience. And that's what will change the end of life care experience. And it's what's happening. So the good news is as you go out and you advocate for yourself, to get yourself the kind of end of life care experience that you want, you're also being a change agent for everyone else that follows you. Because the patient as the consumer has an extremely powerful voice. And one advocate can change the way the doctor views end of life. So it's huge, not just for yourself, but it also, um, you're, you're gonna have a ripple effect across society. You're joining a movement of people that are about empowering the patient and creating patient-directed care. Um, whether you realize it or not when you take that step. And something that's so important about what Kim said is that those conversations, taking the time to, to take your business elsewhere, all of those pieces uh, necessitate you doing this before there's an emergent situation. Yeah. You know, Kim, you know, if she figured out that the doctor wouldn't honor her birth plan while she was in labor, that's too late, right? We, yeah. That's you're, you're really in trouble at that point, right? And so the fact that from the very beginning, she was saying, this is what's important to me, this is what I want, gave her the ability and the time to be able to find a, a new doctor. And so often, especially in Cure for Dementia, these decisions happen in emergent circumstances. Mm -hmm. So when you're deciding about where a person might receive care, when you're deciding it at the moment where suddenly there's an emergency and they can't be at home anymore. And so where do you go? You go wherever there's a bed for that person to be. You're deciding in the moment, are, are we gonna provide care to this person at two o'clock in the morning when the charge nurse calls me and says they've had a fall? or they are confused and we think it's a UTI, or we, they've come down with pneumonia, do we send them to the ED? I mean, all of these things. In that moment, there's not time to be able to negotiate all of these pieces. So all of these things happening ahead of time give the person the option to have what they really want. And so if a person is saying like, oh, should I do that? You should. When should I do that? Now, you know, and, and not putting it off until they're in the circumstance where that emergency happens. Because again, so much of where we find ourselves in medical care is because we don't do that. And suddenly your loved one is living in a place that won't honor their wishes, that's providing care that's not in alignment with it. You're having to find somewhere else in an emergent circumstance versus saying, okay, we've had these conversations. We know what's important to them. And we're gonna do this far, far ahead of that moment uh, where that becomes an issue. I love that you also brought up biases you know, of doctors, of family members, all of that stuff is really important. And to know that you, 
know, when you're planning ahead, you do have control, you do have options. Matt, I'm wondering if you can just show us really quickly on the website where these tools are. And um, Kim, if you can maybe tell us, is there a cost to these tools while he's pulling this up? Sure. Um, so there's absolutely no cost. We are a national nonprofit organization. It is our mission to try to help people have the best end of life experience that's possible. And we bring all of these tools to you at no cost. Um, we all of our, our money comes from from generous individuals who um, donate resources to us. So you're, of course, welcome to donate as you see the button up in the corner. Um, but that's entirely optional. The, the tools themselves are free and are first and foremost is we want everybody to use them. Fantastic. As people can see, you go to compassionandchoices.org. That's and right. As I, as I always say in presentations, there's no post test at the end of it. You don't have to take notes. But the one thing you probably do need to remember is compassionandchoices.org. And from that website, you can find all of our resources. And the most important one for this conversation being under the who we are tab, or sorry, what we do tab, we have a piece that says tools to finish strong. And our tools to finish strong are those tools that we talked about today. Our uh, dementia values and priorities tool, our diagnosis decoder, our full plan your care resource center, which is a full center that has things like the, the document that Kim talked about, about how to find a partner doctor. It's got guides for advanced care planning in different states. It's got guides for talking to your family. Pretty much any question you could think of, there is an answer to it there as well as in our current moment, toolkits around COVID-19 for people that are wondering, you know, how is it that I address these questions in light of the fact that we're in this unique scenario uh, where it's oftentimes harder to get into a doctor's office in person or where I'm trying to think about these things in light of if I got uh, COVID-19. So if you click on the uh, values and priorities tool, it takes you to that website where you can go through and do what it is that we talked about and follow those simple steps. And for folks that use any type of assistive technology, maybe if you have um, trouble seeing the print that's on computers and things, uh, all of this is formatted so that those tools will work for folks. So if you're having any hesitancy or anxiety around that, just know that these tools are made for you too. So uh, yeah, I encourage everyone to visit our website and to check these tools out. And I'll just add that you can save um, your tool if you want to, your responses, um, which really speaks to earlier when you talked about, well, what if you change your mind? Well, if you save all of your options, it's very easy to go back, change your mind, and then reprint out a new tool. And it even emails it to your doctor and emails it to your loved ones. So um, there's a very simple way to help share with those people that are important to you what your values and priorities are using the tool. So they would set up a, like a, a um, an account with password and all of that. Um, how long does it take to complete a tool? Yeah, well, on average, we found that it took people about 20 minutes to go through the tool when we did some of the trials and things like that. It varies. You know, for some folks, they start it and they go, oh, I got to think about that one a little bit more. And then for some of our, our folks, which, again, I think speaks to how on people's minds this is, whether we talk about it or not. It's very simple. Oh, that's very clear. I know exactly what I would want in that scenario. I've been thinking about this for years or decades. And so um, it's just really interesting as people are prompted through those pieces, um, how it is that they engage with them. I had um, the privilege of when we were creating the tool of getting to sit down with some families and some individuals as they were going through it and hear the conversations that they were having about 
each of these questions and scenarios. And, um, you know, again, for most people, it's, uh, it's very clear to them what they would want or wouldn't want in each scenario. And so it, it ends up taking folks 20 minutes or so to go through it, print it, and, and have this again as an insurance policy. Well, I can't thank the two of you enough. Uh, this has just been an exceptional show. You've given us so much information and I think really eased the process and the possibility of having this discussion. If it's for ourselves or if it's for a loved one, you know, this is in this is really important, something that we we should address, not only for ourselves, but as you mentioned earlier, but for our loved ones uh, to make these decisions and, and take that burden off of them. Because I can tell you, they're horrible decisions to make if you have not had these conversations on someone else's life. I mean, chances are you will second guess your decisions the rest of your life. And, and who needs that? There's too much living to be done. And, um, you know, so have these conversations about quality of life. Um, go to their website, compassionandchoices.org. And again, there you'll be able to find all of their, their tools that are available to you. And again, they're free. So nothing wrong with that. Um, you've made it really easy with having an account where it can be saved. Put in your calendar, you know, to check it in a year, see where things are at, or if another diagnosis or change comes about, you know, just hit it at that time. I really appreciate all you guys do. So again, thank you so much to our listeners. I just want to say, um, please like, click and share this. This is, this is an important conversation. You might still be in denial and not want to deal with it today, but maybe it'll be next week. Maybe it'll be next year. Everyone's on a different path. We're not here to scold you. We're here to educate you and let you know that you have options that can empower not only yourselves, but others. So live smartly, be part of this. Thank you. Thanks, Lori. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.